camp today. Uh, what a blessing for camp and for the ministry there. Um, Gina and I will be headed there right after the service as well. Nice little eight, ten hour drive uh, after church, but we're looking forward to it. Can't wait to be with our children. One of the things that we love at this church is to invest in the next generation. And I think those of us that are here this morning know how important that is. If the Lord does not return, we will go on to be with Him. And so we invest in this next generation, whether it's our student ministries, our college and career, or our children's ministries. These are ministries we invest in, and we are so grateful. And so we send whole worship teams and uh, some of our best to go and be with those youth to teach them and spend this time. These are forever changing times for the kids. And uh, what an opportunity to teach them. I can't wait to get there and be with them. I'd ask you to pray for my strength and Gina's. We're a little bit whipped um, after coming around the world a couple of times, it feels like. Um, but uh, we nonetheless can't wait to be there. Please pray for the safety. Right now we have I think, six or seven van loads and a number of cars all on the road together. Um, these are things that the elders <laughs> want you to pray with us for, that our children are protected as they drive, and then just a great week. Another way that we really want to declare our love for the future of the church is through BBS. Uh, these cards are available back there. Please grab them. You, doubtlessly, you have neighbor kids around you. Give one of these cards away. Invite them. Josh and his team are doing a great job uh, for this BBS. Jesus is the king of kings. Think there's a better message for your neighbor kids than that? Grab one of these and uh, get those in the hands of others. And while you're at it, take a seminary class or a Bible college class. <laughs> Their sign-ups are out back here. Let's pray, and then we'll look at Matthew 18 today. Father, thank you for the church. We're so grateful that you sent your son, that he would die for the church. Individually made up of believers that you knew before the foundations of the world, and you gathered together. And here we sing your praises, Lord. Truth that lasts down through the ages. Through hymnals and worship songs, that truth continues to come out. And Lord, we have the great privilege of preaching that this morning. Father, we do lift our students and workers up as they head for camp. They are on the highway even now. We pray that you would put a hedge of protection around those vans and vehicles, Lord. That you would keep them safe. Lord, that you would be pairing hearts even now as these young people head for a week away from phones, away from the world in so many ways, Lord. And we pray that you would do a great work in their heart. Father, we pray for those who can't be with us today because of illnesses. Some have gone through treatment. Others have been in the hospital. Um, others are just not strong enough to come. And so we pray that you would bless them and care for them. Lord, help them love you more as they suffer through these trials, Lord, that we be mindful of them. Father, we thank you for the world of missions that you're doing around the world. Gina and I's heart is so full after seeing your church in so many different cultures and different languages, all rejoicing and praising the same Jesus, the same truth of the word of God. Lord, what good it does to our souls to see you accomplishing your work you promised to do. So we pray for those missionaries. We pray for their churches. We pray for their outreach, their street witnessing. Each and every person they come in contact, build your church, Lord, and give them strength. May we continue to give and serve and do what we can here as we hold the rope for those who are on the field. Lord, now we ask you bless the word of God. May we not just be hearers of it, 
but may we be doers of it. This passage is directed towards our hearts, Lord. May you do your work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Dangerous Desires for Greatness is the title of the sermon. I was asked to preach this passage overseas, and I did it basically in a Bible study. And so I came home and was so impressed with what I'd learned, I wrote it into a fuller sermon. And I really want to share that with you today. We will get back to our series in 1 Corinthians 10 next time I'm back in the pulpit. But I want to look at Matthew 18 today. It's, a, it's an amazing passage. And it's centered around a very small group. It's Jesus and his disciples and a few others. And there are tremendous lessons to be learned there. Now, as we look at the Bible, we see that there are many names that, the, that God's word gives to his people. You can go down through a list of them. I jotted a few down. We're called the branch, the bride, the faithful witness. We're called the family of God, the glorious church, the temple of God, the apple of his eye, the assembly, the beloved, the brethren, the chosen, the elect, the building of God. We're called overcomers, heirs of promise, heirs of the kingdom, heirs of salvation, his disciples, and many more names are given to those who are his children down through the ages. But one of the most precious things that he calls us, and a name used more often than anywhere else, is he calls us his children. We are God's children. There are phrases like this throughout the Bible. Children of Israel, children of Jacob, children of the light, children of the bridegroom, children of the covenant, children of the day, children of the highest, children of the kingdom, children of the Lord, children of the most high, children of promise, children of the beloved, children of the prophets, children of the resurrection, children of Zion, and God's children. Those are just some of them. This is an important term. In fact, it's an endearing term that we see in God's word only given to his children, not to the world. You'll probably have heard this. People will say of the world, they're certainly not believers most of the time. They'll say, aren't we just all God's children? No. We are not all God's children. We are a product of him. We all display the image of God, but it is only those who have been redeemed solely and only through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ that are his children. And so these are beloved terms. Now, as God's children, we're extremely blessed, right? We, we have protection. We have an amazing, loving, perfect father who watches over us, don't we? We have his care. We have his inheritance. We have all the resources of the father, the Bible tells us, loving on us, caring for us, even disciplining us in his love because we are his children. Isn't that worth praising the Lord? Are you glad you are his children? Are we awake today? This is good news. We are the children of God, not the children of the devil. You're either one or the other. And so here in this scene now, we have this, this glorious Savior who's equal with the Father, now teaching his children some important lessons. Now, remember that this perfect and flawless God, who is our Father, he's adopted us into his, into his family. And when we think about adoption biblically, we know that he takes us in, he wipes out our past as though it does not exist. Sometimes Christians like to bring up that past, don't they? That's not God. He wipes out our past as though it doesn't exist, and he gives us this eternal inheritance and relationship with him as he cares for us perfectly. But we are his children. And the term children teaches us something, doesn't it? Uh, children are weaker, aren't they? 
by nature. They're weaker. You want to arm wrestle a five-year-old? Well, maybe some of you got, got, got beat, but most people. Right? See, by nature, a child is weaker, aren't they? They're vulnerable. They're needy. They're dependent. They're immature, and they can't survive on their own. They need help. And so this term, children, is such an important term. And in this first section of Matthew 18, Jesus is revealing the vulnerabilities of his disciples. He's going to take them into a unique illustration to reprove them and prepare them for life and ministry and the birth of the church. He's going to teach them great lessons. Verses 1 through 4, he teaches children that pride and the desire for greatness is dangerous. In verses 5 through 10, he teaches the vulnerabilities that, that they need to be careful of. In 12 through 14, he speaks of children who would wander away in his pursuit of them. In chapter, excuse me, in verses 15 through 20, we see that he loves and disciplines his children to bring them back. In verses 21 through 35, you see the forgiveness that's granted to his children. This is an amazing uh, chapter within the Bible to learn how God cares and loves his children. So in this, we'll see a series of powerful lessons, and these lessons are for us today. I was thinking about this on our trip. I thought, Lord, you've really blessed Riverbend Church. We continue to grow. God continues to do things both here and abroad with us. It's humbling to, to think what God is doing. Uh, we give him all the credit and glory, and this is no boast in us. This is a boast in the Lord. And, and I, I was talking to Brian Sheely this week, and I said, I think it's because our goals are simple. Here are our goals. Love Christ, love his word, and love each other. Can I say that again? If you got a pen, write it down. Love Christ, love his word, and love each other. That, that's the biblical recipe for a ministry that will glorify God. And when we strive for these things, that's what happens. Now you say, well, that sounds pretty simple, but yet there's a profoundness to it. There's an unbreakable unity between God, his word, and his church. And it's one of the greatest lessons that I see in this text as I studied it. But the lesson is not just Christ, his word, and church. The lesson is how pride will rob Christ of his glory. Pride's an ever-present problem with us, is it not? How many of you had your nose bent out of shape somehow this week because something didn't go your way? Every one of us. I mean, it's as simple as somebody cutting you off on the road to someone not treating you the way you thought you should have been treated or spoke to you. What We struggle with pride, don't we? And it's a killer to the church. And Paul, excuse me, Jesus desires that they not rob his glory by pride in the rejection of his word and the hurting of one another. So Christ is going to build his church. He's doing it here. Our job is to make sure that we die to self. That's how the church grows. Because God removes that pride for us so he can use us. I want to look at just three thoughts this morning as we look through these 14 verses of these lessons that Jesus has given. Number one, sinful pride has no part in the kingdom of heaven. Notice in verse 1 it says, at this time. I love, I love it when Jesus does this because it allows me to set up the setting, right? 
It is a beautiful setting here. He's at the end of his Galilee and Capernaum ministry. He's been ministering there for almost three years. He's going to start making his track towards the cross. But this is the end. They've just come off of the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter, James, and John have seen the unveiling of the full deity of Christ. His glory as though the glory of the Son of God all before him. And he has sent Peter on a fishing trip to pay taxes. But in the middle of all of that, there's an argument going on among the disciples. That argument is who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Now that's amazing, isn't it? You're with the king of kings who pays his taxes from the fish's mouth. And you're there in an argument with your fellow disciples of who's the greatest. Isn't that just like us? We, we miss the greatest thing right in front of us, the glory of Christ. And we're worried about what people think about us. And this is what's happening in this time. Look at Mark chapter 9, um, verse 33, just over a chap, uh, book. Here we see a, a little more fuller setting to the attitudes and the thoughts that are going on this Mark chapter 9, 33 through 37. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, what were you discussing on the way? Let's just stop there for a moment. Nothing gets by Jesus. <laughs> he is God. He knows your thoughts before you form them, let alone your little argument of your prideful situation that you've been involved with. Isn't that interesting? Here he has them in the house. He knows exactly what they were arguing about, but yet he wants them to bring forth it. And notice the prideful response, verse 34. But they kept silent. Ooh. See, pride isn't always just speaking. Pride will remain so, uh, uh, solemn and silent in order to protect one's person. And this shows that they are very prideful, that they remained silent. For on the way they had discussed with one another which of them, look at this, was the greatest. Can you imagine this conversation? Well, we'll get into this a little more. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and a servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not, does not receive me, but him who sent me. So there's the setting. You, you have this now gathering in this Capernaum home, and notice at the end of verse 1, back in our text in Matthew 18, the question from the disciples is, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of God? Jesus is addressing here now. He's provoking this. He's addressing the disciples' pride and their lack of humility. And say, well, how do you know their pride? Well, think about this. Peter just got back from paying taxes from, for him and Jesus from a fish's mouth. The rest of the guys, it doesn't seem, got their taxes paid from the fish's mouth. Now that might be a temptation for Peter to go, well, maybe I'm the greatest. None of you were sent to go fishing. You can see this building in this and Jesus is dealing with it. There might be pride there. Maybe there's jealousy on the other ones. The other disciples are going, great. My taxes, I, I didn't get them paid. 
There's jealousy and that argument starting to happen within there. Peter, James, and John have just come from the Mount of Transfiguration. Maybe, maybe they're coming off that and going, hey, Bartholomew, guess what we did today? We're the inner circle. We know him. I mean, he, Jesus is unveiling this. He's showing them that this continual arguing over the greatest is causing division. He wants to show them the wickedness of it. Christ has continually spoke of his death, his burial, and resurrection, and yet they're oblivious to it. Isn't that interesting? Eleven times Jesus tells the disciples, in the closing days of his life, this counting here too, says, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to put to death by the hands of sinful men. I will die, be buried in resurrection. And they have no idea. You know what that tells me? Pride blinds us from the truth of God, doesn't it? It actually blinds you from the greatest message in the world. And, and, and what happens as Christians, our pride will work its way into it. You'll hear a message on the gospel, and you really won't hear it. Because you're consumed with the things you have to do tomorrow. You're consumed with maybe hurt in your life. You're consumed with something that is taking you away, and you don't hear Christ speaking to you through his word. And so this gospel was veiled because of pride, self-seeking desires. I mean, think how intense this gets. The night before their death, the mother of James and John says, hey, can my kids sit on the left and right of you? That's pretty intense, isn't it? What do you think Philip thought? Oh, great. Where's my mom? There's a problem. Now, listen to this. There's a problem with 11 men. Judas is there. He's going to be out in a minute. There's a problem with 11 men who are going to go preach the gospel to the world in a matter of months. And it's pride. And it needs to be dealt with. We go all the way down to the Last Supper. In the Last Supper, they have been arguing over self-ambitions and insensitivity to Christ. That prideful insensitivity flows into the garden. Peter, sitting there listening to Jesus, Jesus says, I'm going to die. Peter says, no, you're not. I'm not going to let that happen. Jesus says, Satan's asking for you. He wants to sift you. See, pride just opens the door to all kinds of temptation, doesn't it? Jesus knew it. He knew this was a danger of his future leaders of the church. Disciples sleeping, Jesus weeping. Isn't that a great difference? There in the garden, our, our Lord is weeping like, like tears of, of blood. And they're asleep. What a contrast between our Savior and men. See, that's where pride takes you. Well, what does Jesus do about this? Look at verse 2 with me. He called a child to himself and set him before them. Well, by now, Peter's probably back from his little tax-paying fishing trip. It's most likely this is maybe Peter's house, as we see in the other uh, gospel accounts that's his house was in Capernaum. Jesus had healed his mother-in-law. And this is possibly, think about this, Peter's own child. We don't know that for sure, but it's Peter's home, most likely, could be his child. 
The word child's an interesting word. It means a very young one. Could be an infant up to a toddler is the idea of the world. But this is a, this is a very precious scene. Around Jesus is these prideful disciples who have been arguing and debating of who's going to be the greatest and fighting and jockeying for position. And there, in the middle of the room, is the creator, Savior God, incarnate with a child on his lap. I hope that gives you the scene. Wow, we just came down the street in an argument of who's going to be the greatest. And Jesus is trying to help them see a lesson, a spiritual lesson of the dangers of pride. Look at verse 3. And he said, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, I love the word truly. Jesus often says that. Truly, truly opposed to falsely, falsely. Right? Watch the news today. Falsely, falsely. Read your Bible. Truly, truly. That's good, isn't it? What are you listening to? Here, Jesus says truly. So everything that comes from him is pure truth. He is the definition of truth. So the statement of truth is this. Christ is going to explain how one inherits the kingdom of God. I think that's very important. You should listen. Now, remember the kingdom was everything to the Jews. Particularly the Old Testament Jews coming down to this. Kingdom meant everything to them. But I believe Jesus is using the word kingdom, kingdom of God here in a general way. Um, we, we certainly understand when we're saved or brought into this spiritual kingdom that God oversees, Christ is the head of it, and we enter that at the time of salvation. And, and, and clearly in Matthew 25, um, he'll speak of the physical aspect of the kingdom in his great Olivet Discourse. If you want to hear a sermon on that, you can see Mark 13 that we preached on here a number of years ago. But notice what Jesus says, unless you are converted... Now, the word is strepho there. Your, your, some of your translation may say turn, which is a good translation of that. The idea means to repent. It's the, the idea of turning away from something. The word is, is used throughout the book of Acts, places like Acts 3.19. Repent and turn so that your sins may be wiped out. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul giving evidence how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. There's a turning with repentance. So right off the bat, if you want the kingdom of God, there has to be a change of direction. Spiritually, we're born dead in going the opposite direction of the kingdom of God. That's what the Bible says. Dead in our sins. Children of wrath. The Bible's clear on that, isn't it? So in order to get to the kingdom of God, there has to be an incredible 180 degree change of direction is what Jesus is saying. You must be converted. You must repent. See, this is the obvious mark of a true believer. I, I've met a lot of people that I walk away and I go, Lord, are they in the faith? Because they say, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I think he should accept my lifestyle and who I want to marry and my kind of love and all those other things. See, there's no turning. There are a lot of people who believe in Jesus. He's a cool guy. He, he's a great He's a great worker out there. He's done a lot of things for a lot of people. There's a lot of people believe in him. But let me tell you what the true believer is. You have to know this, brothers and sisters. And you have to believe this. It's one who is repentant of their sins. You can't get into the kingdom of God unless you've been converted. You've changed direction. And this false prosperity gospel that's just blowing across the world. We just came from circling the globe almost. It's everywhere. 
God needs you. God wants you healthy, wealthy, and wise. There's no repentance in it. They don't talk about sin. Jesus says, oh, you want the kingdom of God? Turn. Repent of your sin. Notice, to be converted or to change direction means you become like a child, Jesus says there in verse 3. That's just the opposite of what the prideful disciples were doing. See, they were thinking they were going to gain the kingdom. They were going to even gain some position of authority. And Jesus saying, no, as he's holding this child, this isn't the way to the kingdom of God. He's rebuking them in a great lesson. I mean, the illustration is so real, isn't it? This child, unpretentious, needy and helpless. We, we know that children left on their own without a caretaker, they'll die, won't they? We've seen it. We know this happens. And possibly, in this scene, this child is clinging to Christ. When you pick up a child, they may be afraid you're going to drop them, so they kind of cling to you. In fact, the passage in Mark 9.36 says that he's in his arms. I love that scene. See, this is salvation. is when we cling to Christ and not our own wills, not our own prides, not our own backgrounds or traditions or anything else. This, this is this is a real scene. This child is holding on to the creator, God, and Savior incarnate. And he says, this is the only way into the kingdom. See, the kingdom of God is for those like this child, Jesus is saying. See, this isn't a text on children's ministry. It's not even a text on parenting. It's not a text on the age of accountability. It's about those who come to God through humility, who turn from their sin by the grace of God. It's about those ones who are saved, who have humbled themselves. And let me say this, nobody is saved who has not been humbled. I mean, think about that just for a moment. Do you think you're saved and you never bent your knee to Jesus? You never surrendered your life to him? He's not your all in all, and yet you think you're going to go to heaven? See, every one of us that know Jesus as our Savior know that God has brought us to our knees. He knows that we're empty-handed. He knows that we're needy. Without him, we die eternally like a child laying on the ground. This is the way to the kingdom of God. Look at verse 4 with me. Whoever then humbles himself as this child... He is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's a statement of equality there, isn't there? Whoever humbles themselves, they are the greatest. And so if you're not humbled, you're not saved. And so all that are humbled are all the greatest. And there's a statement of equality in this because there is no levels of hierarchy within God's heaven. Isn't that beautiful? And so the family of God is an equality in the greatness within heaven. But the greatness in the kingdom are those who are humble. And the disciples need to hear this, and we need to hear it too. The, the word humble in the Greek simply means to go low. It, it means to go low. Someone once said the way up is first the way down. You know, in the old times, they had kneeling altars, right? And I think this got abused, didn't it? Altar calls and some, some of that stuff. We know that God can save you right where you're at. He'll save you in your car. I've had men driving to work in the San Francisco Bay Area where God just saved them. And they called me. Uh, Pastor, I'm on 680. I just got to tell you something. God saved me in the fast lane. 
Praise the Lord. But there's a humbling, right? And many of us, probably when we got saved, maybe even got down on our knees. Because the way up is first the way down. Jesus says in Matthew 23, 11 through 12, he says, But the greatest among you, want the greatest? Shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Well, there's a warning. And whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. So the kingdom of God is, is full of humble people. Don't forget the argument that's going on over here. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? Jesus is saying, I'm going to tell you who the greatest is. They're humble. They're humble. See, that's the saved. That's those people that are serving the Lord with the right heart. That's those who are committed to the gospel they can, that continually humbles you. I don't know about you, but I, I think about the gospel all the time. I try to start my day with that. I try to think through the gospel and how... God was so gracious to me. I think about the gospel and the effects of my family, my church, and all. I, I really do try to do that because I'm a selfish person by nature. And the gospel humbles me. Fifty years in the faith, the gospel still humbles me. Does it humble you? Are you amazed still? When you sing Amazing Grace, are you still amazed? Or are you just singing it because you know it? See, see that's what the gospel does. And it causes us to be committed to Christ and causes us to be committed to others because the message is still transforming us, isn't it? That's a beautiful gospel. I think so many people want the church to serve them. That's the problem today. People church hop. They come shopping. A little children's ministry, like your music, don't like it. (laughs) And they go up and down the aisles of church. See, See, they're not there to serve Christ Because when you serve Christ, you serve one another. You'll see in this text, there is no way you can separate it. What you do to Christ, what you do to my people, you do to me. That's what he talks about in this passage. See, they're they're still thinking, well, maybe I am the greatest. I was on the Mount of Transfiguration. I did get the coin out of the fish's mouth. Maybe I got that slot. Because kingdoms, there's kings, and then there's all their helpers and people around them. Then there's the little peons. See how earthly they're looking at this? But Christ says, no, it's humble people. Someone once said this, and think of this. I don't know where this quote came from. I wrote it down a long time ago. Said this, only empty vessels will God fill. Man, I thought about that for a long time. Only empty vessels will God fill. Well, Lord, we're having this discussion over here of who's the greatest. So you tell us. Remember, I was on the mountain with you. Only empty vessels will God fill. Uh, one man said this, uh, coming into the kingdom of God is like those turnstiles at, at amusement park. You, you can't get your stroller even through it, let alone your luggage. And you can't go together. And you can't come in as a family. You got to go through the little turnstile one at a time. It's a narrow gate. You leave everything that you thought was precious behind you. That's humility. We've been singing hymns today. What a joy to sing those old songs. Augustus Toplady wrote in his great hymn, Rock of Ages, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Listen to this. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, 
Look to thee for grace. Foul, I fly to the fountain. Wash me, Savior, or I die. This is the way to the kingdom of God. You see, a child makes no claims to worthiness. They don't come and say, here's my net worth. I've got three diapers and a bottle. So you don't have anything, right? Child, a child is dependent, not independent. See, that's why we celebrate as Christians Dependency Day, <laughs> right? I, I'm dependent upon God. A child will submit to authority. Relies on others for their needs. This, this results in greatness according to Christ and according to this kingdom. This is the biblical presentation of the gospel and the resulting lifestyle is we're dependent upon the Lord. And this is how God gathers souls. You won't see someone get saved who isn't humbled. Humbled themselves like children. That's how he draws them to himself. And again, this is so opposite of the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is built on self and greed. And they're, they're working it around the world. They're going to some of the most poorest people and saying, you, if you have enough faith, God's going to give you everything. God may want you dead for his glory. Right? Does he not have the right? Is he not perfect in all that he does? False gospels elevate themselves as if God owes them something. And here Jesus is teaching a childlike approach as one who is crushed over their sins in the resulting death of Jesus. There's this humbling. And, it, and that humbling, listen, that doesn't just leave us there. That's a continual conforming in our lives. Look with me at James chapter 4. This is a fascinating text to the early church that was struggling with pride issues. They were not looking to Christ and his word for wisdom. James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. The context is this adulterous lifestyle with the world. Verse 4. It's somebody trying to walk the fence line. They want to be in the world, but they want to not go to hell. <laughs> he says, look, you want to be a friend of the world, you're no friend of mine. You're an enemy. And then he goes, do you think that Scripture doesn't speak to these things? He says, look, in verse 5, the Spirit is jealous for its own. You know what the Spirit doesn't like doing? Sharing our lives with the world doesn't like it at all. It's jealous for us. Look at this in this passage. It jealously desires, he jealously desires the spirit which has been made to dwell in us. And then he says this. But he gives a greater grace. Greater than what the world can give and all the things that you go after. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's a statement from the Old Testament repeated over and over in the New Testament. And what a model for us. What a reminder. When Scott is full of pride, I am forcing my way against God. I mean, that's a wake-up call, isn't it? 
Can you, can you think of one area in your life where pride has a stronghold? I can, 10 went through mine, so I'm hoping a few will go through yours. Pride's got a hold. If we think about that, that's opposing to God. But notice what he says. He gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. I, man, do I need his grace. I need his grace in my marriage, my role with my children, the church, everything I need his grace in. And yet we oppose him. He says, submit therefore to God. Verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Well, why is he not fleeing from you? Because you're pride, right? Hey, Peter, Satan's wanting to sift you. Why? Because you're full of pride and you don't believe my word. It's a, it's a great attack angle that Satan has. He's wanting to sift us. What, doesn't he? Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Satan will flee. Draw, God will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your heart, you double-minded. And that's hard language. This is first century preaching. Some of these people had probably seen Christ. It's an amazing... He's not messing around here, isn't he? Purify your heart, you double-minded. Aren't we so double-minded? Okay, someone in this room, maybe me, may argue with their spouse before you get home today. Could that happen? It probably could happen, couldn't it? Some of you are laughing and looking at me, and I appreciate that. I'd say that's pretty double-minded, isn't it? It's pretty prideful and pretty arrogant, isn't it? See, James is saying this is a problem in the early church. Look, be miserable and mourn and weep. Sometimes you have to look at your sin and go, Oh, God, I put your, I put your son on the cross. My sin is disgusting and deadly. You've forgiven me for it, but help me not fall back into it. Help me trust you. They turn to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. The way down is the way up often, brothers and sisters. And this is what Jesus is teaching. Pride has no part in the kingdom of heaven. Second thought. What we do to one another, we do to Christ. What we do to one another, we do to Christ. Look at verse 5 with me, back in Matthew 18. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And Gina and I raised four boys. Um, and outside of our salvation and our marriage, there's nothing more precious to us. Uh, we would defend and protect them with our lives. You know this, parents, don't you? You would give anything for them. We are absolutely committed to them. We would lay our lives down for them. And because of that, if you attacked my children, you attacked me. You grab the bull, you make it the horns. Right? They're my offspring. They're my children. You can't separate us. God gave us the same last name, genes, all that linked us to Gina and Scott, and they are part of us. You can't separate I remember trying to counsel a very angry father who was about ready to divorce his wife. And I remember, I'll never forget this, he said, my children are angry with me, but this has nothing to do with them. And there's sometimes 
you want to deal with people in your flesh as a pastor. <laughs> I said, you're kidding me. You're kidding me. These are your children. And see, I think this is what Jesus is getting at here. And though you and I are not perfect fathers and mothers, we have a God who is a perfect father, and he's a perfect example of a parent. And the clear point of this verse is that it's impossible to separate Christ from his children. So whatever affects Christ's children affects him is what he is saying in this passage. Remember, he's still holding the child. Remember, the argument's still fresh in their mind, who is the greatest. And there, Jesus is saying, if you take on my children, you take on me. To offend them is to offend me. That is now getting close to the belt, isn't it? Christ is teaching his disciples that their pride is causing one another to stumble. And because you are offending one another, you're offending me. Isn't that true? What, what if, what if, what if God does this with our church here? That we are so kind and loving towards one another that we would never seek to offend one another in such a way that it would bring glory to God and peace through all of our relationships. And wonder if we had a church like that. Oh man, I want to go to that church. See, that's what Jesus is after for. This is what the glove of Jesus does. See, the interwovenness of God's children and the Godhead is unmistakable. You offend a child of God, you offend God. Listen to some of the things that we see in the Bible. Luke chapter 10, verse 16. Just listen to this. He's sending out the 70 by twos to go preach. He says, the one who listens to you listens to me. Whoa, that's interwoven. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. You don't think the church is interwoven with the Godhead? I say, I'm not worried about what they're going to do to us someday. God. What they do to us, they do to God. And he's going to be the judge. Acts, one of, man, great example. Acts chapter 9, verse 4. Paul's on a steed. He's going to punish the church, kill, imprison, do whatever he can. Christ meets him on the road to Damascus, knocks him off his horse, and what does he say to him? Why are you what? Persecuting who? What? That was the last thing Paul thought he was doing. Isn't that interesting? Paul is there to punish, to persecute Christians, and Jesus says, you're persecuting me. This is quite a lesson, isn't it? You want to hurt the church? You're attacking Christ. That's the clear message. You want to cause someone to stumble because you're so prideful and you want to be greater than somebody else? Here's what the real lesson in that room in Capernaum is. You're causing my children to stumble and you're a threat to me. This is what Jesus is saying. We saw in 1 Corinthians 6, 15, this great verse do you not know that your body, bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members, plural, of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Paul uses this illustration that Christians are going and being involved with godless pagan things. They're actually taking the body of Christ with them. Now that's challenging as I studied this this week. I thought, Lord... 
I know you go with me, but I didn't know I had to take all of them. Isn't that true, though? Remember, you go after my four sons. What you do with them, you do with me. See, where are you going this week? Where are you taking all of us? See, we're the family of God. And what you do to us, what we do to each other, we do to Christ. This is the lesson here. Don't miss this, this believer, this internal connection, eternal connection with Christ. Notice the word received. It's a, it's a great word here. It gives the idea of deliberately taking someone to yourself. So Jesus is saying, if you receive this believer, this child, that's, that's what this is about, the believer, you receive me. And if you welcome a believer, you're welcoming Christ. If you receive them, intentionally take them to yourself. And if you're doing this, you're striving for unity with the believer. You're striving for unity with me. So when you and I, as the church here at Riverbend, of the local assembly of Christ Church, when we strive to love one another, strive to accept one another, strive to greet one another in love, we are doing that to Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Matthew chapter 25 goes through this whole illustration of feeding those and visiting them in prison and so forth. And Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, what does it say? You did it unto me. Wow. What an amazing thing, isn't it? See, here's the key thought. How you treat the church is how you treat Christ. You know, I don't think a lot of people Maybe, maybe churches don't teach on this. See, that's why we have such unity here. See, see, we started out and said, yes, God's doing something. We can see where God is working and, and, and coming and helping Riverbend do what all he's doing with us. But one of the reasons is because we're striving to be in unity with him. And we do that to be in unity with one another. To love one another. Not compromise, but love one another. See, too many people separate their love for Christ and how they feel about the church. I, I don't know how many people I've witnessed through the years and say, well, I love Jesus, but I just don't like those Christians. You've got to show them this passage when they say that. You're not in the faith, brother or sister. I, I, I mean, you may not be. You should really examine yourself. Yeah, doubtless, hypocrite right here. Fail to live perfectly. But please, let me beg you. Don't attack Christ. I didn't attack Christ. I said, I love Christ. I just don't like the church. No, well, you just attack Christ. Because it says, what you did to them, you did to me. And, and think about Jesus. He forgave us. We're forgiven. So, so isn't that the example? Forgive one another just as God in Christ forgave you. So that's the mark of a believing church. It's the mark of a healthy church. It's the mark of a church that God wants to use. You forgive one another. And you treat each other like you would treat Christ. I, I just, I love this in verse 6 and 7 because now after that stellar comment, he turns to this warning. Look at verses 6 and 7. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling block, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to the man through whom the stumbling blocks come. Well, first, these little ones who believe refers back to verses 3 and 4. They're, they're metaphorically speaking of believers, right? 
Notice the word like and such as in 3 and 4. This is not physical children. He's talking about spiritual children. And particularly the ones who believe in Jesus who have been converted. They've repented their family members. And then he uses a very powerful word, stumble. Scandalizo is a Greek word. I just like to say that. Scandalizo is a fun word to say, isn't it? We get our word scandal from it, right? But here it has the idea to cause to, to stumble, to cause to fall. Man I, man, I thought long and hard about that this week. I said, Lord, there's doubtless areas where I cause people to stumble because of my pride. I'm so sorry. It, it has this idea of entrapping people. See, there, there's this extreme sense of protection that's coming from Christ over his children. This is a harsh warning laid out in this passage. And notice it comes with reality. Look, it says, it's better that a heavy millstone be tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. Now, whoa, wait a minute. That's drastic, isn't it? This is not some, you know, grinding wheel you have to grind your flour, you know, at home. I don't know if you do that anymore, but... Um, this is the this is Samson was pushing one of these right had his eyes gouged out. This thing's taking you right to the bottom. I don't care how good a dog paddle you are, you're going down. In fact, this form of execution was known to be used by the Romans, and they used it for the the highest people they wanted to completely show a demonstration to. They would take them out into the sea, tie a millstone around them, and kick that thing off the boat and down to the bottom they go. This was known in the first century. This was not some kind of just made-up metaphor that Christ was using. I, I think this must have been a sobering moment to the arguing, prideful disciples at this time. Oh, right before we came in, we were just arguing over who was the greatest. See, every believer is a child of God. And now that starts to get home, doesn't it? Maybe the child of God I'm most familiar were with, where's a ring I gave them? It's better that you be thrown into the sea than to cause one to stumble. See, maybe that's another church member you haven't got along with or you have not reconciled with. Maybe that's a believer in a different culture, different ethnic group, different economic group. Maybe they're young, they're old, there's some kind of diversity that you've been offended by or not liked or, or shied away from. This, this is the reality of this. This is how we associate with one another. And God says here, don't, let, don't, don't be a stumbling block. There's something, you're better off drowning. Man, when I read this, I go, Lord, this is so much bigger than we think. Because we're worried about our government and Ukraine and, and, you know, the price of gas. And, I mean, we got a lot of issues going on. When's the last time you thought about who you've caused to stumble? See, this is where the rubber meets the road in Christianity, isn't it? Now, this doesn't mean we don't deal with sin. He goes on in Matthew 18, 15 through 20, the steps of discipline to restore fallen children. And to identify whether they're really children or not. God loves to restore his children. We'll see that at the end of the lesson. But Jesus is making it clear there is no room for sinful pride in the kingdom of God, in his family. And we'll say, well, how does that cause to stumble, that phrase? What, what does that look like? Well, maybe you tempt somebody into sin. I remember as a young man, you know, being working in a warehouse while I was going to Bible school with some pagans and 
you know, you walk in and all of a sudden they shove some magazine. That's when it used, pornography used to be in magazines. In front of you, oh, look at this, Scott, you know, preacher kid. Well, that's one attitude. That's one level of it. But maybe enticing somebody to do something that's borderline, like, well, it's kind of a gray area. See, there's temptation to sin. There's encouraging someone to go against what God's word says. What about hypocrisy? Jesus says that the Jewish leaders made their people twice as sons as hell as himself. False teaching, it goes directly in conflict with God's word. How about unrighteous living? We, we know the righteous standard of God. If you've been a Christian for days, let alone years, we know what the Bible says, don't we? We, we know what he says about living worldly and living for him. It, it's not hard. You have the spirit of God living within you going, hey, I'm in here. Don't take me there. Don't look at that. Don't eat that. Don't drink that. Don't do that. This is my temple. And I'm not talking about anything legal here, but you, legalists, you know what I'm talking about, though, right? See, see, we know these things. How about husbands and wives failing to fulfill their roles? Husbands are pictures of Christ. Wives are pictures of the church. I think that can be a great stumbling block. Now, it, it's unconditional. The love of a spouse is unconditional. It's not based on performance from the other person, but it can certainly be a stumbling block, can it? How about children that are disobedient? The list of children being disobedient is in some of the grievous texts within the Bible. It'll talk about just some of the worst things that we hold the highest sins, and it'll say, and disobedient to their parents. Children, are you a stumbling block to your parents? God loves first-time obedience. See, we, we get down a little, a little deeper here. Singles, singles that pursue a very self-centered life, that affects other singles. They really don't have someone to keep them accountable sometimes, and so some singles decide to pursue godless things, and the next thing the other singles are going with them, you can see where this goes. This attitudes and sinful practices. We've all heard stories of a drunk man who was walking out of his house to go be drunk again and looked back and his son was trying to walk in his footsteps. See, that's what it does. We cause somebody to stumble just because of the things we do and say because it's not gospel motivated. Paul told Timothy, don't worry about your youth. Be an example to those who believe. He's warning the believers in chapter 8 through 11 in 1 Corinthians to co stop causing their weaker brothers to stumble. He says, look, I, I'm, I'm giving my life to this whether, so that, that when I preach to others, I won't, myself won't be disqualified. Notice in verse 7, this word woe, this is strong language. Certainly the warning is to the world and there are attacks on God. Woe, he says. Woe to this world. That's a powerful warning. But there's a reminder here to the believer of the danger of the world. God's going to judge it. And notice in this passage, it's both woe to the world and woe to the man, both corporately and individually. Hey, there's times going to say woe to the world. <laughs> we're saying it now, aren't we? And we're going to get nailed for it. But we're going to stand because we know what God says. And we love him, not this world. When you think about the world, it's led by the prince of the power of the air. 
in the prince of the powers of the air's desire is for Christians to walk according to the course of the world, not according to God's word. That's his goal. See, it's a reminder that the world will fall under the judgment of the Lord. This is not our home, brothers and sisters. We're aliens, we're strangers. And Jesus says, woe to the world. God's children, look, we're in a good fight. It's a good fight, but it's a fight. Now, with this child still sitting on his lap, look what he says in verses 8 and 9. This is drastic here. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands and two feet and cast them into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It's better you enter life with one eye than have two eyes and be cast into fiery hell. Well, this metaphorically metaphorical language is strong isn't it here and though this language is figurative it drives the point home that God's children listen must take drastic measures to deal with sin and again you can't separate this from the gospel you can't just say man I'm going to go cut this off I'm, I, I heard the message today oh you better love Jesus because <laughs> that's not the time you sweep something out of your house seven of them come back right the repetition here drives the point home. And look, only, only unbelievers are the ones in hell. Let's be clear about that. But Jesus is accentuating the seriousness of sin in this passage. And they're going, oh, wait a minute, we were just arguing out here about pride, and yeah, that's what I'm talking about. See, this illustration is powerful. Come to me like this child and stay close to me like this child. See, that's the recipe. That's the prevention of sin. That's the prevention a gospel-centered life gives us. And you'll be willing to sacrifice things. You'll say, you know what? I don't want to live in the world anymore. I want to live for Jesus. And you'll not only prevent sin in your own life, you'll actually help others. Verse 10 is an amazing verse. Um, it says this, See to that know that you do not despise one of these little ones. We'll stop right there. There's a, there's a negative verb here, right? You can see it there, do not despise. The negative verb intensifies the charge. I want you to get that. Do not despise. He uses a, a negative here to drive this point home to make sure you know this. The word despise means to look down with inferiority, right? And so Jesus' main point is how you treat my children is how you treat me. So despise Christ's little ones, you despise me. So this is what Paul's been talking about in our series in 1 Corinthians. They're flaunting their liberties. They're showing partiality. They're rejecting the equality in Christ. They're withholding mercy. They're judging one another while they have a plank in their eye. They're defrauding their brothers. They're elevating gifts over others. They're gifted over others. And they're poorly confronting sin. And they're a stumbling block to each other. And Paul's on full out... Um, coming at them with everything he has in 1 Corinthians 8 through 11 to show them this. Now, then Jesus does says something here that's just amazing. He gives the most compelling reason not to despise Christians or cause them to stumble. Look at the end of verse 10. For I say to you that there are angels in heaven continually seeing, who continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For I say to you, that there are angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, now, right there he says, I say to you, that's strong authority and affirmation by Christ. 
And then he refers to these angels, and you go, whoa, 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 what, what, what do these angels have to do with this? I don't know that we fully understand everything that Jesus is talking about here, but we do know some things. Hebrews 1, 1, four, excuse me, 1 14 says, are they not all ministering spirits? He's showing the difference between Christ and angels, because Jesus is not an angel is the context there. The angels are sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. What a statement. So we know that angels minister to us. They minister to the elect in some way. We don't quite fully understand that. We do know in chapter 13, verse 2 of Hebrews, it says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing this you have entertained angels without knowing it. So I, I, angelology is one of those things we go, okay, God, you got elect angels, you got fallen angels, they're doing something. But he brings that into this conversation. And I think what's clear here is these angels in this verse 10 of Matthew 18, they're in the presence of God and they never take their eyes off of him. Do you see that? Continually see the face of my father. These are elect angels. They don't want to miss any direction from the father. Now, we know this is what they do because they perform the word of his word. They obey his voice immediately, Psalms 103.20. So I don't think this is guarding angels in the kind of Catholic uh, way that's taught in that Roman Catholic church. But I think the emphasis is on the angels who are captured with the glory of God and are ready to do his work in regards to the father's children. So <laughs> Jesus is saying the angels are in on this. They're waiting. They're constantly gazing at the Father to go and serve his children. You shouldn't stumble one of them. <coughs> this verse describes the importance of one not to cause someone to stumble. Sorry, that got me too excited. I'm almost done. <coughs> Verse 11. <coughs> you feel worse than I do. Don't worry about it. <coughs> Verse 11 is not in the better manuscripts. And that's why it has a bracket in your Bible. <clears throat> that verse is found in other gospel recordings. But the idea is that Jesus is the, is the Savior of the lost is probably what this scribal insertion was. Last thought, and this is quick, and we'll, we'll pray and be done here in a minute. A perfect father who refuses to lose none of his children. I love these last verses. I think this is the application of the truth of God's view of his children here, what Jesus is teaching. <clears throat> These verses describe the value of each and every one of his children. <clears throat> Look at verse 12 with me. <clears throat> what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go and search for the one that is straying? You think about this, here's this inner circle, Peter, James, and John. It's possible they saw themselves as greater because Jesus included them in some things. Maybe Andrew, 
he's feeling a little bit left out. You know, he's Peter's brother. How would you like that gig? There's something to be said. Peter's going to say it. Where's Andrew? Oh, he's in the back. Philip and Bartholomew, never mentioned in the inner circle. Matthew, a former tax collector. You like that monkey hanging on your back in the Jewish world? James, the son of Alphaeus. Hey, are you James? No, I'm the other James. <laughs> Thaddeus, obscure from Scripture. Thomas, forever labeled as a doubter. Simon, oh, the other one. And Judas, the secret thief and a betrayer. And yeah, there's another Judas, not Iscariot. John 14, 22 says it seems to be hanging around Jesus quite a bit. Jesus is trying to say, I value all of you. If you're a child of mine, I value you. I will leave the rest to go find that one. See, he's teaching equality, isn't he? This is something they needed to learn. Jesus is reminding these disciples that all of his children are equal and all have value as heirs of the kingdom of God. Paul said there's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave or free, nor male nor female, for all are one in Christ. What a warning this is Jesus has given his disciples. But it's not only a warning. It's also instruction here. If Christ will go to the wandering, shouldn't we? Notice in verse 13, if he turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over all the 99, that I'm not gone astray. He rejoices over it. <coughs> Notice the great joy when one returns to the flock. Have you been there? Have you been a wanderer? We sing a song, oh wanderer, come home, you're not far. One of the passages I'm going to teach to the kids is this. <clears throat> this week, if I don't die before I get there. John chapter 6, verse 39 and 40. This is the will of him who sent me. Who sent him? Father. So here's God's will. That all that he has given me, I lose nothing. But raise it up on the last day. Then he says it again in verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. All of them. I won't lose none of them. This is not about who's greatest. This is not about who's most gifted. It's about equality in the family of God. And when you and I love one another and treat each other biblically and right and godly, we are showing our love for Jesus Christ and his Father and the triune work in our life. Isn't that amazing? He's trying to drive that point home, and that's what he means in verse 14. He says, so it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones perish. We're in a fight here, aren't we? We've got to fight our flesh. That's where it all starts. And so the way you treat someone is the way you treat Christ. This is a lesson Jesus gave to his disciples that has far-reaching effects into our own life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the strength to preach, Lord, today. But I mostly thank you for this passage. 
I thank you for the reminder and the humbling that it brings into all of our lives that all of us that claim you as our Savior. We thank you that we have a Father in heaven who loves us, who treats us in equality. He sees us as all his children, all his sons and daughters. We are allowed someday to sit at his table and sup with him. What an amazing remembrance. Lord, we thank you that you love us in such a way. And Lord, I pray that you would help us love one another this way. Lord, help Riverbend be a place where we die to self. We pray for our camp staff that they'll die to self as they get ready to serve these young people. I pray for each and every one of us that we would fight pride, Lord, that would rob you of your glory, that would distort your word, that would distort the true recognition of the family, Lord. Cause us to die to that pride, Lord, because certainly your son died for that. So, Lord, help us. Lord, give us, give us strength in a world that's gone astray, Lord, to live in it but not of it. And we'll give you the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.